Today I'm going to start with a little bit of a game. So, it all will become apparent. Can see, it's going to start off easy, it might get a tiny bit harder, but I'm sure you can, you can manage this. So, we'll skip over that slide into the next one, which kind of gives it away a little bit. Can anyone tell me what does this sign mean? Very easy. Good job, chap. No entry. No entry, yeah, nice and easy one to start off with. So, next one. Anyone know that? Warning. Oh, well, there we go. Matthew's very warning, but he's got his red triangle there. Next one. A bit, little bit more difficult now. Anyone got that? You pretty much get that, yeah? Yeah, so I think we've got a like, high voltage wrist of electric shock, yeah? I think that's well done. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not on the pirate. Yeah, uh, toxic is that one. I think this is the final one. Oh no, there's one more. Anyone know that? Yes, I see that, I see that a little bit. Radio, um, radioactive hazard. And this is the last one, so if anyone knows this one, oh, that's more difficult. Oh, Ruth's on it. Here, Ruth's got it. Risk of explosion. Well done, right. So, the, uh, you might be thinking this is a bit random. The link is where we're starting a new series, which is called The Seven Signs and The Seven Sayings um, from, the John, um, from the Gospel of John. So, we're going to start off this year, starting today, by looking at those um, seven signs um, in the Gospel of John. So, as, as we've just seen, um, in everyday life we encounter lots of signs, don't we? Um, the same applies in the Bible. Um, we encounter signs, and they're not always immediately obvious. Um, there's lots of things in the Bible that operate on, on multiple levels that reveal a spiritual message and a truth behind what we might see on the face of it, face value. And the wonderful thing about those signs in the Bible, of course, is that they're not just saying, this might explode, or don't go down this road. They're telling us wonderful um, things about God, about our Saviour, and who He is. We generally think of signs in the Bible being supernatural events, um, which demonstrate the power of God, but also point to a deeper truth and reveal something of significance about who he is and how we can relate to him. So before we look at signs of the book of John, I thought it would be good maybe first of all to look a little bit in the Old Testament, because John links very strongly back to the Old Testament um, throughout his gospel. Um, so if many of you might remember at the beginning uh, of John's Gospel starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this echoes the very first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A really clear parallel there, that both are going back to that in the beginning. Um, yeah, and there's lots of other connections as well um, to the Old Testament. Um, and for those of you who perhaps don't know, I imagine many of you would, but when he talks about in the beginning um, was the word, that word is Jesus. That's who it is. So there are signs as well throughout the Old Testament um, that we encounter. We see quite a lot of signs in Exodus and in the prophets too. Um, and in those kind of different books, we see them function quite differently. So the signs in Exodus, um, they often have a scale and a wonder to them. Um, signs such as the plagues of Egypt. So they represent miraculous displays of God's power. Um, and you might kind of make them equivalent to, say, the big budget movie with special effects that have that wow factor, um, that see them described as signs and wonders. But when we look at the prophets, they can be quite different. They're often like more narrow and focused kind of signs. So a couple of 
perhaps more everyday signs from the prophets. Um, the prophet Isaiah, he walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign. So that's a little bit more of an interesting one. That was a sign of judgment um, on the nations of Egypt and Ethiopia. So if you don't believe me, that's Isaiah 20 verse 3. Another one, um, perhaps similarly kind of random, um, Ezekiel's prophecy, he used an iron pan um, as a sign to Israel in um, four, um, Ezekiel 4 verses 1 to 3. So that's hard to imagine kind of a cooking pan and a naked person walking about barefoot being kind of signs of wonder. But we do of course see other prophets, you know, um, displaying, displaying miraculous signs such as Elijah and Elisha. So what's the purpose of these signs? Why, why do they happen? Well they they serve to authenticate um, the, the prophet and his message to the people. Um, so even those, those big budget signs and wonders um, that you see in Exodus, they serve to kind of demonstrate who Moses was, but also communicate something of God's purpose. But the, the common thread is that they were used to tell God's story, to communicate what he wanted to say. And the full title, as I mentioned, of this, this series is the signs and the sayings, um, because in John's Gospel we see um, seven signs performed by Jesus uh, and seven I am sayings. Um, so we're going to be, as I mentioned, we're going to be exploring the signs this year and then we'll go on to the, the sayings in, in 2024. Um, I'm convinced that as we do that, as we delve into the, the Word, God is going to show us new things. He's going to show us new things in His Word. Um, and it won't just be kind of information for our hearts, it won't be, oh, that's, that's fascinating, but it'll be things that speak to our spirit as well, speak to our spirit and change and transform us. Because of course that should be the purpose, shouldn't it, of all our, our teaching. We want to engage with it in a way that transforms us inwardly, uh, that we live differently, that we know God closer. Um, so quite a number of miracles took place in the book of John. Um, but only certain ones of these were referred to as signs. So I thought you might be interested to see the seven signs that we're going to be looking at. So these are the seven signs that we're going to look at over the next kind of couple of months. Um, water into wine, John 2, the healing of the royal official son, the healing of the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of 5,000, Jesus walking on water, restoring the blind beggar, uh, and finally the raising of, of Lazarus. Now there is a little bit of debate in the Bible about which exactly, if it, if it is these specific signs, but these are the seven signs uh, that we're going to look at. And I think it is interesting, I think it is relevant that there's seven signs, and there's definitely seven sayings, um, because obviously the number seven is a, a number of significance in the Bible, isn't it? It uh, relates to completeness and wholeness. So it's saying something about who Jesus was, that he was the complete and fullness of God, as it talks about in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, where it says this, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought, um, brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. So I believe these signs and sayings are communicating something about who Jesus was. So I'm going to go on to look at one specific um, sign this morning, but I thought I'd also touch on what these signs as a whole are communicating. And the first thing, I believe, is they're revealing his glory. They're revealing his glory. So unlike uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, um, when Jesus performs these signs, they not only um, testify to 
the divine, uh, the divine authority of the message, but they testify to the reality that Jesus is the divine message himself. And they don't only testify that this is God's word, but they declare that Jesus is the divine word of God, like we read in John 1 verse 1. You know, what Moses declared, Jesus, um, he could never declare the same thing as Jesus, because Jesus was declaring, I am the Son of God through these times. I am God. So that's the first thing, to reveal his glory. The second big thing that these signs are conveying to us they're convincing us of who Jesus was. In John 20, uh, verse 30, um, John tells his readers that he specifically selected these signs um, in the book of John to communicate something about him. In John 20, uh, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many of the signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in, the, in this book. And then the next verse, it goes on to say, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. You know, John explicitly declares that these signs in particular can declare something about Jesus, about who he was, and that we can have life in his name. So that's my kind of brief summary and introduction to, um, to the seven signs. And hopefully, perhaps in the coming weeks or months, you might want to spend a little bit of time you know, reflecting on these, these particular passages. Um, I'll share those, so if you'd like to read them kind of in advance of, of some of our preachers, you might want to spend some time praying about them, just what God is speaking to you. Uh, but the passage that I'm going to look at this morning with us is um, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. So I should mention that we're not actually necessarily going to look at these signs in order. So don't think, oh, I know what's coming next week, because we might catch you out. So we might you have to keep on your guard, so... Um, I'm actually kind of looking at sign three, if you like, um, this week. And I haven't got much time, so I do feel like I'm only kind of going to scratch the surface. Um, but I'll do my best. So if you'd like to turn to, you've got tablet, phone, Bible, whatever, turn to John chapter five with me. Uh, we'll look at this amazing story um, that's called, and the title of my Bible is called The Healing of the Pool. So John chapter five, starting at verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five coloured, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man, We've been healed. It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, 
See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So I was, after reading the story, kind of praying about it, um, thinking about it, um, a line of a, a lyric of a song came to mind. And I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes when I'm reading, like a lyric or a song or another verse in scripture will come to mind. And this, the, the lyric that really came strong for me after reading uh, this account was this. Your light broke through my night, restored exceeding joy. Your light broke through my night, restored exceeding joy. Does anyone know which one? I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, he's got it. You turned my morning into dancing. Yeah, that's what came to mind as I was thinking about the story. That was one long night for this man, wasn't it? That he'd been enduring. A night that had gone on for, for 38 years. 38 years of searching, hoping, longing to gain his kind of freedom, his salvation, his healing, which he thought was going to come through this magic, inverted commas, pool. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, what he'd been through, how long he'd been struggling with that ailment, seeking his healing. And having a condition in biblical times, it would have limited every aspect of his life, wouldn't it? He would have been able to work, he would have been able to provide for himself. In his relationships, he would have been dependent on everyone else. And I'm not sure if you've prayed for something for a long time, for the days, weeks, months, years, but it can be difficult to be in that place, can't it? Even when you're searching your heart's desire in the right place, it can be difficult to be in that place of being in the in-between kingdom where we're in the kingdom that's come, but we don't see that kingdom fully come, do we? We don't see our prayers always answered in the, the timing or the way that we would like. And for this man, was he searching in the right place? Was he searching in the right place? Jesus doesn't explicitly say it, but perhaps by what he says and does, it kind of indicates that this man's longing was misplaced. He was longing for someone to help him into the pool, but it wasn't really the pool that he needed, was it? After 38 years, a man walks into his life and says, do you want to get well? Might seem like a bit of a ridiculous question. Might think I've been here every day for however long it was. But I think, believe it was a powerful question. Jesus is the great questioner. As we look at the Gospels, we notice that Jesus has an amazing ability to pinpoint the issue at hand and ask just the right question. You might be thinking, well, it wasn't much of a special question, was it, do you want to get well? But I believe it had deep significance. And time and time again, we see Jesus doing that, walking into situations and asking just the right question, a challenging question, a curious question, a question that's driven by compassion, by love. So why did Jesus ask this particular question? Perhaps because this man was on the verge of giving up hope. His hope had been deferred so many times. He felt he was in a helpless situation. You know, he identified himself that he didn't have anyone to help him into the pool. And perhaps this is a picture, perhaps this is a sign of mankind. Without Jesus to lift us up, we are helpless, aren't we? We can look in all sorts of places, to all sorts of people to be our help, to get where we think we want to go, what we want to achieve. And this man has spent a long, long time looking and hoping, but ultimately he needed Jesus, he needed God to intervene. He was the one who would show him the love of God and express that in a simple instruction, a simple 
pick up your mat and walk. You know, this sign is pointing us towards Jesus being the fullness of God. He's the one who gives whole and complete restoration. He demonstrates this by bringing physical restoration, but also he longs for spiritual restoration. You know, we see later in verse 14, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing may worse may happen to you. He cared about his physical condition, but even greater perhaps than that, he wanted him to know God, he wanted him to turn his life, he wanted him to be redeemed, he wanted to turn away from where he'd been and come to God. So this sign points us towards a God who cares, who breaks into the darkness with his light and restores exceeding joy. And perhaps it's easy to be content, isn't it? Perhaps it's easy to think, lots, you know, lots of people think, I don't need that spiritual restoration. Actually, I'm quite happy with how I am. But we do need rescuing. All of us, each and every one of us needs rescuing. And of course, you know, if we're a Christian today, if we've given our life to Jesus, then he has done that for us. He's ultimately done, done that in his death and resurrection as we put our trust in him. By forgiveness, his forgiveness and new life. You know, and we witnessed a wonderful symbol of that, didn't we, last Sunday, when we were able to go and, and celebrate with uh, Steffi and Rhea um, as they were baptised, and they came out of those um, waters to new life. And it was a great, it was a brilliant joy just to celebrate with them. You know, something physical and happening in the physical that represents what's happened in the spiritual, them coming into that new life in Jesus. And I really believe there's the significance in where Jesus chose this miracle for as well. It's by a pool that could apparently result in healing. But it was interesting that it, you know, that he did it by a place of water. We see water, don't we, throughout the Bible, representing God's spirit and his life. You know, if we think back to the um, passage in Ezekiel 47, we see a beautiful picture of the river of God flowing out of the temple, the different regions bringing his life. And in John as well, we see references to water representing his spirit and life. John 3, 5 says, this is Jesus talking, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. But whoever drinks, and this is, um, sorry, John 4, 14, and this is Jesus speaking again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Of course, again, baptism is that picture of coming into new life. So we're established that there's, there's importance and significance in the place that Jesus chose to perform this miracle. And I thought you might be interested to know a little bit about the place, about the pool of, of Bethesda, um, because it's, it is quite interesting. Um, up until yeah, 1888, um, they didn't know that this existed, didn't believe that it existed at all. There's no evidence, because there's quite a specific description of it, isn't there, in verse 2. It talks about it having five colonnades or five porticos. There's no evidence that this place existed. And then um, an, arche um, an archaeologist came and discovered what perhaps might be evidence of these ruins in 1888. But it actually took another hundred years before they established that this was the site and identified in John, because they had to dig down 13 metres to get the evidence when they found these five colonnades, and that showed them this was the site of that, that miracle had taken place and was recorded in the Gospel of John. And I just find that amazing that 
even to this day, you know, it took 100 years, but even you know, in the last in recent decades, we're finding things that are showing evidence that these gospel accounts are true, that as Jesus walked his, and lived his life, there's evidence of, of how that happened and that rings true with John's gospel. That is, I just find that amazing. As I mentioned earlier, there's quite a lot in this gospel that, that um, links back to the Old Testament, to prophecies about what would happen, about the coming Messiah, of course, and about him bringing life, bringing hope, bringing healing. And there's one um, passage in particular that I wanted to share with us, um, and this is from Isaiah 35. And there's just, just several elements. He doesn't speak of this specific example, but it speaks of God's truth and what his purpose was, what he wanted to do through his people. So this is, if you want to read with me, um, feel free to follow along. This is Isaiah 35, and it just speaks in, in beautiful metaphorical and literal terms of prophetic word of what Jesus would do. So this is Isaiah 35 from, from verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst and bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give, up, give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Waters will gush forth in the wilderness streams and the desert. That's such a beautiful picture, isn't it? Such a beautiful passage of what God is going to do. What he did for this man by that pool. He was lame and he rejoiced. He came out of this um, um, affliction to healing. But Jesus wanted more for him as well, didn't he? He wanted to come, he to, come to that new life. He wanted to come to save him. He didn't want him to look in the wrong place. He wanted to put his trust in him. He was the hope. He was the glory. He was the sign and he was the divine one. So what are the kind of key things that I'd love us to take away from this um, amazing sign that was performed at the pool of Bethesda? Well, first of all, just the sign of who Jesus was. He was who he said he was. He was God. He was the divine message. This shows us this message and the sign shows us something of his glory, his beauty, his compassion of who he was. He cared about people. He cared about their physical well-being, but he also wanted to restore them to life. And he wants each and every one of us to put our trust in him. No matter where we're at today, he doesn't want us to look to the world, to the hope of the world. He wants us to put our trust in him and to come to him believing that he can, he is our hope, that he gives us spiritual blessing, he gives us new life, and yes, he heals today as well. He works powerfully in this world today, we trust in that, we believe that, we believe that he heals today. Yes, we don't always see him work in the timing or the way that we want, but we still believe and we trust for his work, his blessing, the outpouring of his spirit. And perhaps today, 
you're struggling with something, maybe you've been struggling with something for weeks or months or years, and my encouragement to you today is to trust in him, to know that he is your hope, he is your life. And remember today, if you put your trust in him, that he has broken into your darkness and he has brought his joy. His light has brought you joy today, no matter what you might be struggling with. You can know exceeding joy in him. And I just want to pray that you would come and know that hope today. Know that joy today, no matter where you're at. And remember this wonderful sign that Jesus performed, that we might know him. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came 2,000 years ago and you performed the sign to show us who you were, Lord God. To show us that you are the divine message. To show us that you are the compassionate and loving son of God. That you want to heal us. That you want to restore us in the physical and in the spiritual. And in whatever way we need restoration. You are our hope, Lord God. And I just pray today for, for anyone that's struggling to know that hope. That needs restoration in any area of their life, Lord God. That they might put their trust and their hope in you, Lord God, because you are the healer. I thank you for the hope that you give us, Lord God. I thank you for the compassion that you show us, Father God, the example that you are to us, Lord Jesus. And I pray that we can, we can um, represent you in our lives, Lord God. We can display signs of your glory in our daily lives, Lord God, by praying for those in need, Lord Jesus by pointing people towards you, the wonderful, compassionate one, Lord God. What a joy it is to know you today, Lord Jesus. And I just pray for anyone here this morning as well that doesn't know you, Lord God. I just pray that they would put their trust in you, put their hope in you, and know that they can, they can be restored to new life in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus.